Today on Something You Should Know, people aren't getting sick and dying like they used to. And you'll be amazed at the reason why. Then, willpower. You probably have a lot more of it than you think. You know, one thing that's really important is to not look out at other people and assume that they have this amazing strength that we lack. And what I've actually found in, in working with people on willpower challenges is that all of us, when we find a goal that's really important to us, we all have these strengths. Plus, why you need to wash your credit cards and the amazing way time affects food, like why a lot of Italian food actually tastes better the next day. You know, as they sit there, all those ingredients, they sort of rub up against each other and things will sort of mellow and soften. I talk to people like chocolate makers and they tell me that, you know, even freshly made chocolate, compared to chocolate they made and then left and came back to, it would change flavor and it would have mellowed. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. And we start today with some really good news. And here it is. People are not getting sick as much as they used to. The weird thing is, though, no one's really sure why. A host of age-related diseases are diminishing in wealthy countries, and it can't be entirely explained by advances in treatment, screening, or diagnostics, according to the New York Times. For example, about half as many people are dying from colon cancer now as during its peak in the 1980s, according to a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. Rates of heart disease, dementia, hip fractures are all decreasing as well, and people are remaining in good health longer. So whatever it is you're doing, you should keep it up and do more of it. The problem is, we don't know what it is. And that is something you should know. How many times have you said to yourself, I wish I had more willpower? It's pretty common, I suspect. We all struggle with wanting to do something or stop doing something that's really, really hard to do. 
Well, Kelly McGonigal is a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University and author of the book, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. And I don't know anybody who knows more about willpower than she does. And she's here to shed some light on this very important topic. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So what is willpower? I define willpower as the ability to do what matters most to you, even when it's difficult, or especially when some part of you wants to do something else. So like when you think about the word willpower, what's something that challenges you? What would you say you need to use willpower for? I need willpower, I think, for a lot of things. But the the biggest challenge I find is perhaps late at night when, you know, there's something in the kitchen, a piece of pie I could go eat that I probably know I shouldn't. And if it were in the morning, I wouldn't do it. But in the evening, I don't seem to have as much willpower and uh, I'm more likely to cave. Uh, That is such a great example for a couple of reasons. One, you have perfectly described, I think, the central challenge of willpower, which is that there are a lot of things in life where there's one part of us that wants one thing and another part of us that wants something else. So maybe in this case, when you're in the kitchen, there's a part of you who wants health, longevity, vitality, whatever it is that's making you think you shouldn't have that extra piece of cake or dessert. And then there's another part of you that thinks it's going to taste really good right now. And maybe you're feeling a little low on energy and you want a little pick me up and it's just calling your name. And there's this competition of selves, the two parts of yourself. And one way to think about willpower is it's the ability to remember what that sort of long-term self or wiser self wants so that you're not constantly giving in to immediate gratification. But the other thing you said that's so, I think, important for people to realize is, you know, willpower is not a fixed thing. It's not the case that if you have a lot of willpower, you always have a lot of willpower, like it's a personality trait. It actually is is more like an energy or strength that we draw on. And it is the case, as you described, that when we're tired, when we haven't had enough sleep, when our blood sugar is low, or when we're feeling really stressed out, we often have less access to our willpower, and we're more likely to give in to immediate gratification. And when I do that, and I think when most people do that, you know, the test of failing willpower is the next day you think to yourself, yeah, geez, I really wish I hadn't. Yes. And you know, that actually is a great moment to reinforce your willpower. So, you know, when we think about what willpower is, we're often thinking of that. I won't power the part of you who maybe the night before should have said no and closed the refrigerator door. Um, and that's just one part of willpower, the ability to not give in to temptation. But we often don't talk about, um, this other aspect of willpower that I call, I want power. And that's the ability to be really clear about what it is you care about. Um, what's most important to you. And when you're really clear about that, it actually makes it easier when you're faced with that choice, that moment of temptation or that moment of anxiety or dread to find the courage or the strength to make the choice that's consistent with your biggest goals, your most important values. Is willpower, do you think, a virtue? Uh, And what I mean by that is, for example, when you look at like world-class athletes who train like crazy and they they deny themselves a lot of things to get their body to look like that and to perform like that. And I don't think I have that. I don't think I can do that. And is what they have a virtue that, that just some people have and some people don't? You know, one thing that's really important is not look out at other people and assume that they have this amazing strength that we lack. Um, often when we look at athletes, yeah, they might have amazing willpower 
because a certain goal is really important to them. And you'll see that in some aspects of their life, like in training or in diet. Um, but it may be the case that in other aspects of their life, they're falling apart a little bit. You know, maybe they're having affairs or they're gambling or they're struggling with drugs and alcohol. And what I've actually found in, in working with people on willpower challenges over the years is that all of us, when we find a goal that's really important to us, we all have these strengths, the ability to resist temptation, to put our energy toward what matters most to us. I call that the I will power. You know, we can find the I won't power to say no to the things that get in the way if we have a strong enough want power. And I would guess that if I were to analyze your life, I'd find something in your life where you're showing tremendous willpower because it's what matters most to you. And what matters most to you is not necessarily being a world-class athlete or, you know, sculpting the perfect body. Well, I think it's a perception that people often have is when you see a world-class anybody, athlete, business person, actor, that, that they're so on top of their game in that, that they must be on top of their game in all elements of life. But I always suspect that if, if you're so self-disciplined and self-controlled in one area, that, that your humanness has got to, you know, leak out somewhere else, that you're, you can't be on top of your game in every aspect of your life. Yeah, I think that actually is the case, and you often see that. But um, there is a, a common idea in the science of willpower that willpower is a limited resource. It's a kind of a controversial idea right now, but um, I've actually found it quite helpful when people are thinking about making important changes in their lives to understand that if there's something that you're spending a lot of time and energy trying to control and you want to change something else in your life, you might need to shift some of that control, some of that energy away from the other thing so that you can put your energy and attention toward what, what matters most right now. This idea that we could ever be perfect human beings who are controlling every thought, every action, every temptation, um, that's not really what willpower is about. I think it's, that's why I define it as being able to choose what matters most. Well, I, I think that's really key to this discussion, because so often I think when we think of willpower, we think in terms of being able to deny ourselves something. But what, what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is that if it's not just what you're not going to do, but if you have something that you do want to do, it makes it, it makes it easier. Exactly. And in fact, when we talk about willpower being a bit of a limited resource, it seems like the I won't power is actually more limited than our I will power. That is when we have a positive motivation and there's something that we want to chase or there's a goal that we're, we're making progress toward, that often is more motivating. We have more energy behind it than when we're constantly trying to say no to something. It's why often when people are trying to quit a bad habit, one of the pieces of advice you'll often hear is you have to find something to replace it with or you have to be very clear about how when you say no to that cigarette what is it you're saying yes to? Is it being a good role model for your kids? Is it that you're saying yes to um, in, you know, an extra year of your life? And you can make that kind of concrete link in your mind. Um, because like you said, just saying no all the time to something that seems like it might feel good right now or might be easier right now, that can actually be exhausting. And, and we weren't born to have unlimited reserves to say no to immediate gratification or comfort. Well, there is that rational, rationalizing that humans do of, you know, what's one more cigarette? What's one more piece of pie? I could skip the gym today. It's not going to make any difference. 
Yes. There are a lot of cognitive traps that we fall into when we're we're trying to make a change or make progress on our goals. Um, one of them is this idea we have that our future self is going to have more willpower than our current self. And it's actually, it's a funny psychological phenomenon. Um, researchers have found that if you ask people how much free time do you think you'll have a few weeks in the future? How much energy do you think you'll have? How much self-control do you think you'll have? We, we idealize our future selves and we think that our future self is going to be able and willing to do something that is really hard for us right now. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we say, well, just one more you know, cigarette or drink today and tomorrow a fresh start. Um, and I always encourage people to take the smallest positive action that is possible for your present self. Because actually, you know, one of the ways that we strengthen our willpower is by making very small choices that just ask, ask us to flex one of our willpowers to delay giving in for say five minutes, even if you end up giving in. We know from the science that that actually builds willpower like a muscle so that we're capable of actually doing more tomorrow. That's how we get a future self that actually is stronger. So you mean if, if you're craving that piece of pie, tell yourself, wait five minutes, just wait five minutes. Yes. And you know, some people think that's a trick and you'll forget about it. But even if you eat it and you went through that delay of five minutes, here's what you have strengthened. So first of all, we know that if people even define a choice as a willpower challenge, it increases their chances that, that they will make a choice consistent with their, their bigger goals. And then if you actually get through those five minutes, you're doing something that um, researchers sometimes refer to as surfing the urge. It's the strategy of acknowledging in this moment, some part of me really wants to give in. And maybe you feel that desire, you feel that anxiety, you feel that impatience. And rather than trying to distract yourself and pretend like it's not happening, you actually let yourself feel it, acknowledge it, and feel yourself saying no for 10 seconds, for 30 seconds, for a minute, for five minutes. And studies also show that when people go through that process, even if they give in, at the end of three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, that the next time they go through that process, they can delay longer or they actually end up delaying completely. And in fact, this um, technique that I just described, this like notice the temptation and try to resist it while paying attention to it, it's been shown to be more effective for quitting smoking than actually nicotine replacement therapy. What about the idea, it's, uh, I think it's kind of conventional wisdom in trying to make a change or to do something like lose weight or whatever it is that you can't deprive yourself forever. And so that, you know, if you, if you're good six days out of the week, that the seventh day you can cheat kind of thing that, that you have to have some reward for sticking to it. How does that work in this? A lot of times people identify with the part of themselves that really just wants the immediate relief or the immediate gratification. And that's when they can fall into this trap of trying to reward themselves for resisting. So, you know, if I ate a healthy breakfast, then I can reward myself with an unhealthy lunch because part of you is thinking like who I really am is the person who wants the unhealthy food. And so I have to, I have to express that part of myself in order to balance out the suppression or the repression of my true self that happened at breakfast when I ate something healthy. And if we can get very clear about who we are and what our values are, it's less likely we're going to fall into that trap. Um, you know, you only have to bribe yourself or reward yourself for being good if who you think you really are is bad. And I actually don't even like to use those moral terms. The other thing I will say is that 
you know, it's also the case that when we engage in a behavior over time, it often becomes more intrinsically rewarding. Exercise is a perfect example of this. So is saving money or paying down your debt. There are a lot of things that don't sound fun until you've been doing it for a while and you start to get better at it. And you start to realize, I really like how I feel when I'm doing this. And I really like how I feel after I've done it. And a lot of the things that we think of as, as being uh, a chore that we have to endure because it's good for us, if they actually are good for us in the sense that they, they help us have more energy, more health, more happiness, they give us more control over our lives, if they really are good for us, they will feel good in the long term. And so it's not the case that you're going to have to, for the rest of your life, try to bribe yourself to, to do the quote unquote good thing. Kelly McGonigal is here. She is a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University and author of the book, The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future, Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Kelly, this may be just a complete rationalization people use, but but the idea of willpower is basically... in most of our minds, basically the ability to do something you don't want to do or to not do what you do want to do. I know. It's exactly the opposite of what I think willpower really is. And it's because, oh gosh, there's so many reasons why it's part of our culture. You know, it's, it's part of how we were raised as children. Um, and I, I just wish if I could challenge one idea that people have about what willpower is, it's really to give people permission to understand that, the reason we have willpower, like the reason that your brain and body knows how to resist temptation, the reason that your brain can mount this defense against fear and anxiety that, that you need to overcome to have the courage to do something difficult, the reason you have that is because we are equipped to pursue the things that are most important to our survival and most important to our happiness and our well-being. And, and that's what we have these strengths for. And we should we should give ourselves permission to direct those strengths at the things that matter most to us. And if there's something you really don't want, it is such a waste of our strength and our energy to try to marshal all your willpower toward it, whether it's, you know, trying to, trying to control your thoughts or trying to be someone you're not, or trying to control something that as it turns out is really hard to control, like your weight. You know, there are times when you can say, this is not working and I'm going to put my energy and attention toward what I believe will truly enhance my life and allow me to contribute to the world. And that's what we have willpower for. But there, but there are things that compete that, that like you may say, you know, I really want to be healthy, but God, if 
life wouldn't be if I had to give up donuts, uh, <laughs> life would be horrible. So, so those two things are competing. Um, are they incompatible? Are they mutually exclusive? Well, let me take a very firm stand on this, that donuts are not incompatible with being a good person or having willpower or even having good health. I will definitely always come down on the side of donuts. And here's the thing. When people are talking about having to use willpower to make a difficult change, it's never about one donut. One donut is not going to destroy your health or your happiness. But often in our lives, we find ourselves in patterns, in, in habits that are creating more suffering than they are creating joy. You know, the people who most need to marshal their willpower toward food choices are actually the ones who, if you, if you take a look carefully, if they investigate their experience, maybe they'll find that they have a relationship with food that makes them feel worse about themselves, that is creating obvious negative health consequences, that they're using food as a coping mechanism. And in those cases, the suffering is actually pretty clear. And that's different than do you celebrate your kid's birthday with a donut? Um, and I think one, when, when I'm helping people figure out like what's a willpower challenge that I want to tackle, rather than having people start with the most obvious choices, the things we tend to set New Year's resolutions around, um, but, but to really ask people, what's something in your life right now that's, that's creating suffering that you think if you were to change it, that habit or that pattern, it would relieve some of the suffering in your own life? And what's something that would create more joy or more meaning? And to, to find your way towards the answer to that question. And that's why we need willpower around food, not because there's some sort of moral imperative never to enjoy yourself. Even with the best of intentions, even with a strategy in place, everybody who is trying to exert willpower will come to face-to-face with some temptation that's going to be very, very hard to resist. And so... What do you do in that moment? What do you do right then when it looks like it's a losing battle? One of the things I often encourage people to do is to imagine that they already know the end of the story. And this can really support willpower, whether you need I won't power or I will power. To actually imagine yourself a year or 10 years in the future where you've resolved this challenge, you have made the change, and to have a clear vision of that. Because one of the things we know is that willpower as a, as a strength or as an instinct in your brain and body, it's really about the future. And if you have a positive vision of your future, your brain and body are more likely to shift into that, that biological state that helps you say no, or that helps you find the energy to keep going. Um, and so, you know, if someone were to tell me that they felt hopeless about past failures, I would say, create that vision of the positive future. And in a very non-woo-woo sort of non-woo-woo way, it's literally going to help the brain give you the resources and the strength you need the next time you try to quit or the next time you try to take positive action. And so how does willpower work best? Does willpower work best when you take little steps or does willpower work best when you try to dive into the deep end of the pool and just go for everything? What, what's, the best, what's the best strategy? Both. This is a wonderful yes and kind of answer that you can find evidence in the scientific literature for both of those strategies to take the smallest concrete steps, even if they seem like they couldn't possibly add up to the outcome you want. There are plenty of studies showing that any positive action, any small step in the direction of your goal can actually become cumulative, can lead to an upward spiral toward change. And you should never be afraid to do something 
because it seems too small. You know, as I mentioned, there's there was one study that showed that if you can delay your first cigarette of the day, even by a few minutes, that increases your chance of being able to quit. And that's something that anyone can do. And you can sort of figure out what's your version of that, what's your version of delaying the first cigarette of the day and knowing that that can lead to positive change. But also, you know, at the other end, there's some people who, when they get very clear about what they want, they know what their goal is, or they know what that value is, that making a bigger change helps them because it becomes sort of part of their identity. So if you're someone who feels like I need to go into this all out, I need to make this a, a core part of who I am. Um, I would never want to discourage somebody from taking a bigger step toward change if it feels like that's what's possible in this moment. I mean, the real answer is you start where you are and you don't wait until tomorrow to start. But if you are to say, if you say to yourself, you know, I really want to get healthy. So tomorrow I'm going to start jogging twice a day. I'm going to, um, <laughs> I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to uh, drink lots of water. I'm going to, I'm going to do all these 17 things starting tomorrow and I'm going to do them every day. That seems like a prescription for failure. You know, it might be for 99 people, but I bet you there's one person listening to this who um, could nail that because that's part of their their core personality. There's some people who are just all in. But I think actually your central point is, is quite important, that um, sometimes we set these extreme goals of change because it feels so good in the moment to make that vow. Um, we get this like hit of optimism and hope and dopamine when we say tomorrow is when everything changes and I'm a completely different person. And if you sense that that's part of what's driving all of these resolutions to, to do the different things that you, that you listed, um, that's when I say, okay, maybe slow your roll a little bit, pull back and say, what's the one thing that you definitely can do tomorrow and, um, trust yourself that that can become part of this upward spiral of change. It doesn't all have to happen tomorrow in order to be of consequence. But there is that one listener, I'm telling you, probably somebody heard it and they're going to do it tomorrow because they hear it and they say yes, and it's time. Well, you know, one of the things you've said that really resonates with me, because I kind of stumbled onto it myself, that really seems to work, is this idea of when, when your willpower is waning, to force yourself to just wait five minutes, you know, don't eat the donut now. Tell yourself you can eat it in five minutes if you really want to. And I find that, that that's a pretty effective way to postponing it because in five minutes you've had time to think about it. And you know what? Maybe you don't need it. But these are all really great suggestions. Kelly McGonigal has been my guest. She's a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. And her book is called The Willpower Instinct. How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. When you think about food, there is one ingredient in everything you eat that you usually don't think about very much, but it's a very important ingredient. It's the ingredient of time. Sometimes it's a lot of time, as in a fine wine or an aged cheese, where more time makes it better. And sometimes it's a very short amount of time, like in really good fresh corn on the cob, where time is the enemy. Time is an essential ingredient, and here to discuss how time and food dance together is Jenny Linford. Jenny's a food writer and the author of a couple of books, one of which is called The Missing Ingredient, The Curious Role of Time in Food and Flavor. Hi, Jenny. Hello. Lovely to be talking to you. 
It is interesting when you stop and think about how time plays a role in the food we eat, and, and in different ways. It's, it's important to have a lot of time for some things and very little time for other things. It is. You're absolutely right. And I think we really, you know, it's so interesting because they're different ends of the spectrum. You've got, you know, freshness. You know, think of the joy of a really fresh fish or picking a pea and eating it, you know. And then equally think of, you know, the value we give to aged foods and wines. You know, we talk about vintage wines and, you know, rare old brandies and, and wonderful sort of Parmesan cheese. And so we really value what age does too. You know, we value time. Right. So time is a friend and time is an enemy, depending on what you're talking about. You're absolutely right that, you know, time is the great enemy because time is the destroyer of food. And actually, as human beings, we've been really, you know, we're an ingenious species and we've developed ways of preserving food historically over centuries. You know, now in the 21st century, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky because we've got refrigeration and freezing. And, but historically, you know, food had gone off. Uh, it was very perishable. And human beings sort of worked on how to preserve it. You know, they did things like they... And, and moisture is really key to a food deteriorating because warm, moist atmosphere is what bacteria love. So if you've got a fresh bit of meat and it gets... And it is moist naturally and then it gets hot, it's just going to go off really, really quickly um, because those bacteria will grow. That's the perfect conditions. You know, hence chilling allows those fresh foods that were very perishable, that are perishable, to, to be stored and... and kept um, for longer. So let's talk about how time is an ingredient in cooking from a cook's point of view in the kitchen. You know, we're often under, we're time poor, you know, we're pressurized, things are in a hurry. And and I sort of realized that actually, if you can just um, pause and slow down a little bit, certain cooking processes, if you just give them a bit more time, will be much more rewarding. And one of them was browning meat. Um, or even browning onions, but meat is an interesting example because when you brown foods, you create what's called the Maillard reaction, which is a chemical reaction named after the chemist who discovered it. And this reaction, which literally, is, you know, you see something as you cook it and heat it, and it, it needs a certain level of, it needs to be hot. You know, it happens at temperatures over 100 degrees. You'll see that browning happening visually with your eyes, and you'll. And what's ha- that, that process is creating flavors that we really like, you know, umami, savory flavors in foods. So, for example, suppose you're making a stew, you know, you've got your beef chopped up. And, you know, if what, from, so my advice from thinking of sort of maximizing, using time really well here, first of all, I would take that beef out of the fridge half an hour before I cooked it, which would de-chill it. And the reason I've de-chilled it is that because it's warmer, it's actually going to fry rather than stew. If I put it in fridge cold, it will just release lots of liquid and just sort of stew, which is not really what you want. You want to brown it because you want to make that flavorful sort of coating on the bits of meat. And if you ever watch a chef cook, you'll see, and they're doing this browning, you see how carefully they do it. And this, you see how long they do it. You know, they'll do it for, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes. An experience I think most people have had with Italian food in particular is how things like lasagna and some spaghetti sauces, they're better the next day than they are the first day. The time somehow makes them better. Do we know why? And I sort of think it is partly that the flavors soften. You know, so with a, you know, you mentioned a lasagna and a ragu, which is classically made with tomatoes, and tomatoes are acidic. But, you know, as they sit there, that sort of, um, all those ingredients, they sort of start to lose their harsh notes. You know, they sort of rub up against each other, 
and the, the sweetness of the tomato comes out, the acidity, um, you know, partly because you are, you know, little volatiles are evaporating off during that time period. And things will sort of mellow and soften. I mean, it's just, it is fascinating. It works very well for, for any sort of braised dish, you know, um, it, it works in other cuisines too, like, you know, with an, an Indian curry. Um, often, you, you know, ideally you would make it ahead of time and sit and let it sit and develop flavors. I talk to people like chocolate makers, and they tell me that, you know, even chocolate, actually, you know, freshly made chocolate, compared to chocolate that they, they made and then left and came back to two months later, it would change flavor and it would have mellowed. It's basically a sort of mellowing, a softening, because I think it is just those volatiles, those harsh sort of uh, aromas are dissipating, and that allows you to then taste and discern other flavors in it. It's been pretty common for people to marinate meat thinking that, that something is going on in that time, that the, that the food is, the meat is sitting in this marinade, whatever it is, and something's happening that makes it better. What's making it better? Yep, marinating, you know, is fascinating. And really, you know, historically there were two reasons for doing it. One was to add the flavor of the marinades, but also very importantly to tenderize. And so actually, if you look at marinades across different cultures, you'll notice they have a lot of, you know, usually they'll have an ingredient that's acidic in it. And that that acid might be lemon juice or vinegar or wine. And the acid literally acts on on meat and tough old meat. You know, so game animals historically were were often marinated for for tenderizing, for a very good practical reason to tenderize this animal that's been running around, around a lot. And, you know, it's got lots of muscles and toughness. Um, so the acid in the marinade literally just starts to break down the cell structure in the meat and makes it tender. And, perme- and it, so then that penetration that happens then allows the, the other ingredients in the marinade, let's say things like garlic or fresh herbs like rosemary or thyme, to penetrate or spices you might be using. That will then um, get, you know, literally those little aromas will then penetrate into the meat and give it flavor. So that's your, you know, so that's a, you know, it's a very useful um, way of adding flavor and tenderizing meat. Talk about eggs, because you, you point out that, you know, uh, uh, you can overcook an egg pretty easily and you can undercook an egg pretty easily, but, and, and the fresh eggs react differently than not-so-fresh eggs. So talk about that. You know, one of the reasons why eggs are challenging to cook is that basically the yolk and the white have got diff- are different substances and they behave differently. Because the white is predominantly made up of water, while the yolk, which is the food, you know, for the embryo inside, if there was an embryo, it would be, is rich and full of nutrition. So basically they require, you know, different cooking in a funny sort of way. And one of the things I think is really interesting, which people don't realize, is actually the freshness of the egg is key to poached eggs. So, you know, if you want a really nice poached egg that's set and firm, you know, however carefully you cook your egg and however, you know, Carefully simmer your water and add a pinch of vinegar. Um, what's key to that is not how you, it's not your cooking method, it's actually the egg itself. It's that, you know, what you want is a really fresh egg. Because the fresh, as an egg ages, it, it changes texture. And the white becomes runnier um, because the protein in it begins to break down. And the yolk then gets water from the egg white, so the yolk becomes thinner. Talk about coffee, and, and I know people, and you say, and other people say, oh, you've got to have really fresh beans and grind it just before <laughs> you. I can't really tell the difference. I drink coffee every day, and I'm, I'm not that discriminating. I don't have that palate that a lot of people do. Why is roasting 
uh, are grinding coffee at the last minute so important? Well, you know, you're right. That is advice from professional, um, you know, coffee people. When you roast coffee, you take green coffee beans and they're roasted. That roasting process creates volatiles and the aromas. You know, green coffee bean before it's roasted does not smell of coffee. It smells slightly, very slightly grassy, actually. I mean, very little, none of the flavors that we would think of as coffee. So when it's the roasting process that's given what we think of as a coffee flavor to the coffee, it's brought that out. And then when that roasting process happened, you've got lots of volatiles, which will escape, which is why you always, you know, um, coffee is sealed, you know, in bags that will really keep in the, you know, that aroma, that sort of precious aroma. And then every bean is also locked inside it are those volatiles that give that really, um, you know, that coffee hit. And the flavor, again, because, you know, if you are, suppose you are buying, you know, posh coffee beans from, a, from someone who's, you know, a, a craft roaster, They'll have gone to a lot of trouble to, you know, to source that coffee. And so they would have roasted in a way that they think brings out its characteristics, whatever that might be. It might be fruitiness or floral notes or smoky notes. The one advice I got when I talked to these experts was, you know, to enjoy coffee at its best, grind it just before you make the coffee. I mean, these are guys who live and breathe coffee. So, I mean, you know, for lots of us, that isn't um, a mantra that we have to live by. But it makes, it does make sense. You know, you will get your maximum coffee hit from freshly ground coffee. And also from roasted coffee that's not sat around for years and years and years. You know, it's funny. People do love this, don't they? People buy the kit. They buy the grinders and the scales and the the coffee-making gear. One of the things that always interests me is there's fresh beef... And there's aged beef. And, and why? I mean, you would think that time would either be good or bad for beef, but it's both. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in the aged beef, it's a really interesting process where butchers keep meat in chilled conditions, but dry conditions. And, and they must say, they're almost allowing a process of decay that happens. But they just are doing it very cleverly. And, and the butcher put it to me. He said, look, it's like making stock. Because basically, you know, you are, as he ages his carcass, a beef carcass, it shrinks because water's been lost. But with that loss of water, you're getting the intensity of flavor. So his analogy was it's like reducing stock. And so that, so it's a process that is skillful. It has to be done correctly. In Britain, normally it's 21 to 28 days for beef is considered, you know, optimum time uh, to mature meat. And if I sat down and ate a a plate or a bite of aged beef and a bite of fresh beef, I would be able to tell the difference immediately? Yeah, you really would. It was so interesting. I actually did a test for my book, and I bought, um, you know, very fresh steak, which, you know, will look bright. It's much brighter in color. It's very red. It's bloodier. And then if you eat it, you know, you can taste the blood. It's really interesting, and it's just um, a simpler flavor, really, whereas the, the aged beef will have a more, will have a, will have a different texture. It'll be drier. And it will have more savouriness to it and perhaps slightly gamey notes, depending on how it's been aged and how long it's been aged for. And, yeah, and just in a more complex flavour, actually. But it's really, it really is noticeable. It's not a sort of made-up thing. You, you, you know, you would absolutely know the difference. And is that the basic concept behind ageing cheese, that it, it dries it out and it does something? Why do we age cheese and why is that considered better cheese? Well, cheese is really complex, and there are so many different types of cheese. But you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, we do value um, aged cheeses. You know, you think of things like Parmesan or cheddar. And in Britain, historically, we used something called cheesecloth, which was a very porous material, like a muslin, that was wrapped around the cheese. So a, a cheese, let's say a cheddar maker, which is a hard cheese, because hard cheeses are the cheeses that age for longest and age the best. 
Um, so they, a cheddar cheese maker in Britain traditionally would, would make the cheese from fresh curd, rub it with, with a layer of, of fat, often butter because of a dairy farm, and, and wrap this cloth around it. So it's a protective barrier because they don't want things like cheese mites and they don't want the, the rind to crack, but it's porous and it allows the cheese to breathe and, it, and then it allows that, aging, that meaningful aging process to happen. So again, you would see, you know, if you had a very fresh young piece of, of supermarket cheddar that's just been wrapped in plastic, it, you will see, you know, if you looked at it, you could see that it would look much moister um, than a sort of, you know, let's say a, a year-old farmhouse cheddar, which will, look, which will have a crumblier texture. And, you would t- and you'd feel it, and, you know, it would be texture but also flavour because, again, that the aged cheddar will have developed these savoury notes and these umami notes. Yeah, but we do value age in cheese, and rightly so, because actually when, you know, it's, it's actually really complicated to, to look, you have to look after cheese very carefully, and so a good cheesemonger will take it to its optimum point to be its expression of itself. From all the research that you did, if you had to pick one food that, that boy, if it's going to, if you need to pick something fresh, this is it, and one food that you really need to sit back and wait, what, what, would, they, what would they be? Oh, that's such a good question. I do think it's fish. Actually, funny enough, a friend of mine, um, he's a keen fisherman, amateur fisherman, and he gave us a present of a sea bass. And we were in a holiday cottage, and he just left it for us. And I cooked it in the simplest way possible. In the, and boy, oh boy, was that the best sea bass I've ever tasted in my life. And that really brought home to me, and he had caught it the day before. So it was even, you know, so it, was, it was even a few, it, you know, it wasn't like a minute later I ate it, but it was like, my goodness, it was so much fresher than the fish I buy in fishmongers. And it just was delicious, you know, and that was a treat. And then for ageing, I think I would go, you know, I personally, one of the luxurious foods, which um, is, is sort of aged balsamic vinegar, and that is um, historically, now it's, you have to sell it a minimum 12 years or 25 years. And that, that's like a sort of concentrated um, elixir, basically. It's got extraordinary depth of flavor. And it's very different from the mass-produced um, balsamic vinegar. One is traditional balsamic vinegar. One is just balsamic vinegar. Uh, one is made very quickly. One is made um, over you know, years and years and, and in, aged in different woods, which give their different flavor and perfumes. It's really complex. That's a real treat, actually. And if for someone like me who can't tell the difference between a freshly roasted ground cup of coffee and not, would I taste the difference between balsamic vinegar off the shelf and stuff that's been aged for 25 years? You would, because the, you know, the one that is younger is much harsher, um, you know, much more vinegary, much more acidy. You wouldn't, you know, this other one, you can sip it by the spoonful and it's got an amazing sort of sweetness to it. Um, and this sort of fragrance and aroma. Yeah, you definitely, you know, you would. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting, and you do make the case that time is such an important ingredient in the food we eat and the flavor we taste. Jenny Linford's been my guest. She's a food writer and author of the book, The Missing Ingredient, The Curious Role of Time in Food and Flavor. You'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks, Jenny. My pleasure, Mike. Take care. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Bye. A couple of times over the course of this podcast, we've talked about germy things, things like hotel TV remotes and bedspreads and telephones and refrigerator handles on your fridge in the kitchen, those kind of things. Well, someone's come up with some new things we need to be concerned about. For example, credit and debit cards. They are 
covered in germs. They slide into and through lots of filthy spots, and they can safely be cleaned with a disinfectant wipe. You just need to make sure that they're completely dry before you put them away. Electronics, phones and tablets, they're crawling with germs. You should check your owner's manual for cleaning recommendations because disinfectant wipes can damage some touch screens on some phones and tablets. The back of your rugs. When you vacuum, you might want to flip over those throw rugs and vacuum the underside, which you've probably never done before. Toilet roll holders. Every time you switch rolls of toilet paper, you should probably give that holder a shot of disinfectant. And salt and pepper shakers. They are often the filthiest thing on the table with the highest concentration of cold and flu viruses. So wipe those down once in a while. And that is something you should know. Anytime you have a question or a comment or just want to say hi, you can always write to me. There is a contact form on our website. Or you can write to me at mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.